Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as our study in Genesis comes to an end, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we take a look at where do we go from here. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. By the way, I don't know if I introduced myself earlier. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us again. Uh, We got a sermon this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, for the last time, uh, would you turn to me to Genesis chapter 50? Uh, We've been camped out here since January, 10 and a half months or so, uh, walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line at times uh, through the book of Genesis. And uh, this is it. This is the last one. Um, I don't know if that's good news to you or bad news to you. For me, it's, I, I get sad when we wrap up a series like this. I've, uh, I've been learning a lot. Um, you you kind of go into a text knowing, uh, especially when you're going to preach it at some point, like you're like, okay, I know these stories. I've read the stories uh, to prep and to prep the devotional and all of that. Like I've studied the stories. Uh, but then when you, you, you camp out in them and sit in them and uh, you begin to see things you didn't see before. And, and so for me, uh, I've discovered so much that um, is new, new to me and has taken my faith and has brought it even deeper. I hope that's been true for you. Uh, th- this family that we've been introduced to, uh, Abraham, uh, he, he passes on the mantle to his son, I, uh, son Isaac, and then he passes it on to Jacob, who passes it on to Joseph. Um, this family, uh, as complex as they are, all of the family drama and the tension, um, this, this family for me has been really uh, beautifully helpful as I think about the state of our world, the state of my own family, and just uh, the, the brokenness we see here. We, it's, it's weirdly reassuring that uh, that brokenness has been there ever since the beginning and uh, that God has not given up on this family. Uh, if you remember, uh, the thing we've come back to again and again and again throughout the series is that there are three promises. Genesis keeps coming back to these three promises. God makes them to Abraham, and then he passes them down from generation to generation. Uh, God says, I want to partner with you. I'm going to bless you. Um, however, uh, I'll bless you, but there are three things that I, I'll promise to give to you, but there's a piece of, there's like some skin in the game on it. Uh, God says, I will give you land, um, but you're going to have to trust me in the land. Uh, that's number one. And God says, I'll give you children, but those children are going to have to find ways to forgive each other and to reconcile with each other to actually stand as a family who looks like me to the world. And then lastly, I'll give you influence, but often the influence is going to come, this is influence for my sake, so that people would know that God is good. And so often it means humbling yourself so that uh, you are not the point, but uh, that you can make God the point. And so land, children, and influence come up again and again and again. And we've seen how this family has really struggled with that, especially the, the children piece. These, these kids are fighting with each other from generation to generation. Every generation has ended with the brothers dividing and separating until this last generation. And uh, this last generation, you really got to ask the question at this point, okay, as we wrap up Genesis, how, how are we doing on those three promises? How, how are we doing? And it seems like the family's finally figuring it out. Last week, we looked at the last chapter and chapter 50, and we talked through how the families finally found ways to reconcile together. First, father and son, Jacob and his, and his son, Joseph, reconcile, and then Joseph with his brothers. Let me just 
It's a beautiful moment. Uh, let me just read it for you again. Uh, it's Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they've committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, and this is beautiful, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Influence, right? Uh, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't that a beautiful moment? Uh, especially if we see all of the trauma that this family has gone through. Like, just such a beautiful moment. Uh, and then earlier, um, Jacob, Jacob will die, and they need to carry Jacob back to Jacob's one request at his deathbed. By the way, there's layers on that story that um, the next Genesis series we'll talk through. Uh, but when Jacob dies, they got to carry his bones back and uh, back to Israel. And Joseph kind of stalls and he panics and he doesn't know how to talk to Pharaoh. It's all alluded to in the text, right? It takes a long time, about a, a, a half a year to make that journey. Finally does, uh, and he gets to bury his dad and it, the Egyptians send a cohort with him. And so there's this beautiful moment of, of what seems to be closure. He actually feels... Like the book of Genesis ends with a shiny red bow on it at some level. But there is a problem at the end of Genesis, and it's a big problem. Uh, this is a problem. It's a, it's, there is an unresolved tension as the book of Genesis wraps up. Uh, a problem that's going to have to be dealt with. Uh, the problem at the end is, okay, let's think about those three promises. God is going to give you land. God is going to give you children. And God is going to give you influence. Here's the problem. The book of Genesis ends and they're in the wrong land. Uh, in fact, this is how um, the book of Genesis ends. It's got like a cliffhanger ending. Uh, verse 24 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to, J to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph says, I'm not supposed to stay here either. When I die, carry my bones up from this place. And then the cliffhanger. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, we got a problem. Uh, Joseph ends up and we, we hear that he's in the wrong land and he's being embalmed, which is an Egyptian practice, but he's staying in the wrong land. If Genesis was the only book of our Bible and it ended like this, this would be a tragedy uh, because the people of God are in the wrong land. But uh, this is not the only book. Uh, Genesis is part one. Um, the word Genesis means in beginning. Uh, it's, it's, it's not the whole story. This is just the beginning of the story. Uh, the... The book of Genesis without the book of Exodus is highly problematic. Uh, and so God's going to need to take his people out of Egypt, which is Exodus. Uh, today, I want to spend just a few minutes thinking about why. Why is Egypt so problematic? Why would it matter that they stay in Egypt? 
Um, and by the way, for those of you who are wondering, uh, we've debated, and the answer is yes. We will be doing a series on, uh, on the book of Exodus, probably this fall. So uh, as a preaching team, we gathered. Initially, we we're thinking, let's do a long series on Genesis, and we'll see, see what happens on the back end. And we've heard from many of you that you've really enjoyed Especially our anchor groups, those of you um, who are in anchor groups, you've started to communicate back to us, some of you, and you've said you've actually liked doing the the long series, and so um, give us a little bit of time to get some resources together. We want to do it right. We want to do the right study, Um, but probably uh, this fall, so like a year from 10 months from now or so, uh, we will uh, be looking at the book of Exodus together. Um, before then, we've got a handful of conversations that we've been waiting to have that I think are really important. And so um, a couple of series that we want to talk through some things coming up. But Exodus is coming. Is that good news? Oh, good. Yeah, that's what I want to hear. Uh, that's, that's, good no- that's good noise to my ears. Um, the, we just got to wait a little bit of time. Now, the Israelites had to wait 430 years between Genesis and Exodus. So we got like 10 months. Um, Okay, why is Egypt such a problem? Why is Egypt such a problem? Why does God need them in this land that's still, I mean, you've seen the news this morning, Israel right now is in an active war. Like, why this land that's so problematic in so many ways, why does God want them in Israel and not in the land of Egypt? Um, And by the time you get to the book of Exodus, uh, what you discover is that the people of God are settling in Egypt, They're building houses there. They're building lives there. They're raising families in Egypt. And this is a problem. Genesis says again and again, this is a problem. They shouldn't do this. Don't do this. Your land is Israel. But why is this a problem? Now, a month or so ago, I showed you a series of maps. And um, we talked about one of the reasons that this is a problem is because of the location of Israel. And we said that this is a highly strategic, this is a highly strategic stretch of land All of these big empires of the world have to travel this narrow stretch of land. You've got the mountains of Jordan over here with the Arabian Desert on one side, the Mediterranean Sea on the other side. And so if you're going to trade, you have to pass through this narrow strip of land. And so we said, if the goal was to build an empire, you build your empire here or here. But if your goal is influence... You can influence the world from this land where everyone from all tribes and language and peoples and nations are walking right past your house. You look different. You live different. You you live the way of God there and you can actually, you can influence people. So that's one of the reasons. But there is something else. And this is, uh, Hannah did such a great job wrapping up last week that we now have time to look at the something else. Um, So there is something else that's unique about this specific land. Uh, yes, influence mattered. Okay, yes, huge. That land of Israel is going to be hugely influential to the world, and that matters. However, if you're smart, you know this, you can influence from an empire. Egypt had a lot of influence. So while everyone's going to pass down this road for trade, almost everyone's trying to trade with Egypt. So you can influence from Egypt. It's like saying you can't influence from America. You can influence from America, even though we're separated by oceans. There's influence in America. We have status in the world. Uh, Joseph has all kinds of influence in Egypt. You could influence from Egypt. So why does God say, this is a problem. I want you to live in this narrow stretch of land. I want you to influence. And I would argue that the answer to that has everything to do with comfort. 
It is really easy to get comfortable when you're in Egypt and to forget why God has partnered with you in the first place. It is really easy. And I would argue one of the greatest threats to our faith today is this idea of it's really easy when we are comfortable to forget God. This is challenging for us, uh, those of us. Uh, when, when we have hospitals, it is really easy to forget to pray for healing. Right? It's really easy. Uh, you, your first instinct is, i, I got to go here. I mean, it's really easy to leave God out of that whole equation. Uh, when we've got great uh, low-deductible insurance plans, it's really easy to forget uh, that we need to fully rely on God. It's just easy to forget. When we've got uh, these beautiful buildings that we can worship freely in, uh, when we've got caffeine on tap, right, which is good news to me today, we bought a puppy. Um, but he was actually great last night. My, I can feel my wife rolling her eyes because she wakes up with a puppy and I don't. I can feel it. I don't want to. Uh, but but like we have caffeine on tap and we've got a button that we can push and it's magically 72 degrees all year long in this building, no matter how cold it is outside or warm it is outside. It's easy to forget. Uh, it's easy to forget that we come from a long tradition of people, uh, Christians, who gave their lives to be able to worship and to sing the songs we just sang. The, wor- those, the words we just sang would have gotten generations before us and still throughout our world killed. It's easy to forget. Um, now, praise God for all of those things. Praise God for hospitals. Praise God for insurance plans. Praise God for beautiful buildings. Uh, those are all things we should praise God for. My point is it's easy to forget to even thank God for those things when they become routine. When we get comfortable, it's just so easy to forget And I think part of the reason why Egypt is going to be an issue to God's people and to God is it's so easy in Egypt to forget God and why God chose to partner with you in the first place. Um, Now, uh, life begins pretty easy in Egypt for the Israelites. Uh, Life is pretty good. The 430 years start off pretty good. Uh, In fact, did you know this, that the Egyptians are the first civilization on record to come up with the idea of the Two-day weekend. God said, work six, and you get one. Six days of work, and you get one day of rest. That was radical for the time. But the Egyptians came along, and they said, you know what? It's college football on Saturday and pro on Sunday. And they got to mow their lawn at some point. Let's give them two days off. And everyone said, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's incredible. We could take the extra day off. Life starts pretty cushy and easy for the Israelites when they move into to Egypt. It's an easier land. Uh, in fact, uh, everything will be easy until in Exodus chapter 1 we read this. Then a new king, verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. They're growing. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and then leave our country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So life is comfortable and life is easy until along comes a Pharaoh who forgets what Joseph contributed to the culture and says, okay, we can't have them leaving us or joining our enemies, so let's put them in, in, in chains. Let's put them in slavery. Now, the real clue that something is off with the Israelites in Egypt 430 years after Joseph comes in chapter 2. 
Okay, there's an elephant, if you've played our game before, the rules of the game, for those of you who are new, is you're always looking for the elephant in the passage. What doesn't make sense in the passage? What detail seems to be missing in a passage that's normally there? What's weird about the passage? See if you can find an elephant in this passage. This is verse 23 of chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. There's an elephant in that passage. Here's probably several of them. I'll give you the one I see as loud. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out for help. Do you notice throughout your Bible, we hear all of this language of the people of God cried out to God. The people of God worshiped God. But in this passage, we have the people of God are enslaved and they cry out. And then you keep reading Exodus and it's, it seems as though they're crying out to, to the air. To anybody, help us, save us, anybody. It seems as though when you read Exodus closely, the people of God over the course of those 430 years have forgotten God. The radical piece of Exodus is God has not forgotten them, but it seems as though they've forgotten. They don't even know who to cry out for. 430 years, uh, if you go long enough without asking God for help because you don't need to ask God for help because you've got 911 and AAA and Priority Health and uh, Church Hotline Help and all these, when you go long enough without having to ask God for help, you eventually get to the spot where you forget to ask God for help. And it seems as though this is what's going on. Uh, the risk of comfort is it's really easy to forget God. Now, before we go too far, um, I think it's important for us once in a while to uh, confront some bias that we project onto the Bible. Um, there are some things that we accidentally, no shame in this, everyone does it, um, but there's some things we accidentally project onto the Bible. Uh, for many of us, when we think of certain things, when we read them, Images come to our mind based on our own experiences, based on our own sense of what that word means. And sometimes the things that come to our mind aren't exactly accurate to what the biblical story is. Now, that in and of itself is not a big deal. Unless there's like a, a huge lesson that's hidden in the actual meaning of the actual thing, um, in the actual picture of the actual thing. Uh, so, for instance... Uh, Jesus, after he's baptized, the Bible tells us that he goes into the Judean wilderness where he is tempted for uh, 40 days, 40 nights, that, that whole story. He goes to the, Ju the Judean or the Judean wilderness. Now, for me, most of my life, when I thought about the wilderness, what image comes to your mind? When you hear that Jesus went into the Judean wilderness, what image comes to your mind? Woods? Desert? Desert, yes, woods, no. I, though, growing up was also, I thought of Borculo because we had this little like acreage behind our house and that's where we would wander and it was our wilderness. Um, I think a lot of us, when we hear wilderness, we think of something like this. Um, this is American wilderness. You wander around, there's some mountains, there's some forests. You can get lost in the American wilderness. The Judean wilderness doesn't look like this. This is where Jesus was tempted. This is the Judean wilderness. Now, it changes 
Does it not? For those of you who's like, what? what, what? Uh, it changes when, when uh, Satan says, hey, see the stones? Ask them to, to turn to bread. I can feed you. It changes the images, right? It deepens the images, but you have to understand the picture. The picture matters. The picture matters. Uh, another example. Um, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed to go pray. Uh, when you hear Garden of Gethsemane, what images come to your mind? This is what I pictured for most of my life. I, 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 honestly, I pictured garden, and I hear the word garden, and I picture garden. Um, garden of Gethsemane, though, uh, Gethsemane means olive press. Uh, the, it's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, the actual Garden of Gethsemane. And actually, this has been made pretty by uh, a church kind of took over the plot and has tried to make it look like a garden now. Um, but it's, an, uh, it's olive trees and olive presses. Uh, Jesus is on his hands and his, he's on his face, the scriptures tell us, and he's being squeezed so much that his sweat is like blood in a space where olives are brought and squeezed to produce oil. See how the place connects the picture? Okay, um, that makes sense? Okay, one more example. Uh, this, is, this is really the point. Uh, in Exodus, God hears his people crying out. He raises up a leader named Moses. And then in Exodus chapter three, we read this. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and, and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when you hear a land flowing with milk and honey... By the way, some of you, you've been to Israel, and so you, you got a better picture. Um, but for those of you who maybe don't have the picture yet, uh, when you hear a land flowing with milk and honey, what images come to mind? So I don't know about you, but I hear a land flowing with milk and honey, and my brain always thought of the opening scene from The Sound of Music. It's uh, Julie Andrews, The Hills Are Alive, with The Sound of Music. Uh, I don't know why. I picture Austria or New Zealand, uh, knee-deep alfalfa grass. Uh, it feels like this, this land flowing with milk and honey, vast and open and spacious land. Uh, it's just like a really poetic way of saying, this is a really, really good land. And then what I do is I think of my images of Egypt. Uh, and every time I've seen Egypt, it's always the pyramids. It's always desert. It's always brown. So I think Egypt, brown, desert, the land of slavery. And then Israel, God's like, oh, it's going to be an awesome land. It's going to be, the hills are alive with the sound of music. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. And you hear, okay, that's a bad land. This is a good land. And our brain autofills, okay, well, this is what we have of the, uh, what we've seen in Egypt. This is what land of milk and honey means to us. However, I don't think the writers, actually, no, I, I know that the writers of our scriptures are not trying to be poetic when they describe the Israel as a land of milk and honey. They're actually referencing the two main trades in the land of Israel. Now, um, 
Let's do a little word association. Maybe this will help. Ah, little word association. When I say a word, you say this, the first word that comes back to your head. Okay, so we'll, we'll get started, warmed up, okay? Um, I say a word, you say the first word that comes to your mind. Up. Down. down. Oh, 90% down, okay. Uh, cold. Okay. Uh, left. Summer. Winter, okay. Uh, lion. The correct answer was Super Bowl, by the way. Um, okay. Uh, milk. Cow? I want, I want to say cow, but... Okay, how about honey? Bee. Okay, that... Again, if you say anything other than cow and bee, then I don't know what to say next, because that's what I'm hoping you say. Because uh, I hear milk, and I think cow, and I hear honey, and I think bee, because I grew up in Borkilo, uh, and there's lots of bees, and there's lots of cows. Uh, I grew up, these are my images, and so I hear milk, and I hear honey, and I think farmland, and so then I take what I had in my head, Egypt is brown and dry and pyramids, land of slavery, and then I imply, okay, well, bees and cows is really good farmland, and I say, okay, God must be describing here this really great farmland. I'm taking you out of the land of slavery and into the land of cows and bees. Awesome. However, it's a problem when you drive through Israel. You don't see a lot of dairy cows um, really anywhere. There's there's some cows in the north in what what was now known as the Golan Heights, uh, then was known as Bashan. You've heard of the cows of Bashan from your Bible? My lover is like a fat cow from Bashan. It's a compliment back then. Um, <laughs> not so much anymore. Uh, but the, like, there are some cows in Bashan. The problem with Bashan is it is volcanic area up there. At least it used to be volcanic. And so you have these large black basalt stones that even to this day with all of our modern technology, it's really hard to move them. So it's really hard to farm the land because it's filled with this uh, even though it's green, it's filled with all of these rocks and boulders in the land. So you've got to, other than that, though, there's really no cows in Israel. Even now, in our modern technology, there's really no dairy cows in Israel. So you've got to take off your 21st century Midwest Michigan uh, hat, and you have to put on an ancient Israelite hat. Where does an ancient Israelite get their milk? Goats. Goats. Okay, and honey. Uh, now we hear honey and we say bee. Honey and bee. Uh, it's because we have a lot of bees here. There's bees in Israel, but there's not a lot of bees in Israel. However, there is seven species in the book of Deuteronomy. Seven things that God says, this is going to be yours because you live in this land. Seven species. And one of those species is one of the main agricultural industries in Israel. Want to guess? Dates. Dates. The date palm. By the way, date palms, if you look at a date palm, it's, uh, it's, they, they often grow in these large farms now, um, and they're straight and tall. So if you're an Israeli, you say, I want my daughter to grow up to be an upstanding citizen. We shall name her Tamar. It means date palm. Because <laughs> the picture's in the tree. Like We want her to be upstanding. Uh, Date palms are huge. Little girls run around being named little date palms. Uh, They're huge in Israel. Um, And what the Israelis have discovered is dates are relatively dry. 
However, if you take them and you squeeze them, a sweet molasses honey substance comes out. I had a bottle I left at my office. Um, the next service will have a bottle of, you can try it. But then everyone else's finger is going to be on there, so you probably don't want to do that anyway. We'll let them get sick. So, <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's, it's sweet. It's not sweet like honey to us, like the bee honey, but it is very sweet. It's a delicacy, date honey. Um, and when you go to Israel, you'll see date honey all over the place. Uh, so when God says, I am bringing you to the land of milk and honey, our brain autofills the land of cows and bees. But the picture in the land is the land of goats and trees. Goats and farm, agriculture. Now, Let's fill the picture in a little bit more. Uh, what they would have understood is that the land of goats is the land of the shepherds. Shepherds live in some spaces. And then there's another space, another industry. And that is the land of the date palms or the land of the farmer. Now, farming and shepherding are two different industries and they don't get along with each other well. Goats have appetites. By the way, so when you read... Um, and there were shepherds living out in the fields at night, keeping watch over their flocks. When you read the Christmas story, and we are told that there are shepherds living in the fields, like the farmland, you know immediately, Luke's giving you a clue. He's telling you exactly when the story's taking place. Uh, it's not December 25, that came later, another sermon. Um, but the only time the shepherds go into the farm is when you've just harvested your farm. There, whatever remains, fine. Sheep, sheep and goats, you may eat whatever remains, and uh, we would love your deposit on your way out, right? Fertilize our land, please. Uh, so the sheep are allowed in, and the goats are allowed in uh, after the fall harvest, um, but not before. The sheep and the goats live in different areas. Uh, now, I, again, my point is I need to erase this mental image of, it, of Egypt being this brown, dry, ugh, uh, it may be compared to Michigan. That's exactly what it is. But compared to Israel, it's very different. Uh, you picture Israel and you think all of this amazing green. Um, okay, the, let's come at it this way. Uh, there's a line in a sermon preached by Moses. Okay, Moses, uh, Moshe, Moses. Uh, it's in a book called Deuteronomy. Uh, it's it's Moses' greatest hits. It's like his last sermon before he's going to send the Israelites into the promised land. And he has a line, and it's one of those lines that's just too weird to not pay attention to. Okay, see if you can pick out the weird line. It's Deuteronomy 11, verse 8. We'll start. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. That's the promised land or Israel. And so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with Noganani, it's going to be awesome. Cows and bees. Uh, again, the line comes up again. Now he's going to compare and contrast Egypt to this land of not cows and bees, but of goats and trees. Verse 10. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and, here's the weird line, irrigated it by foot, as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. 
So Moses compares Israel and Egypt, and he says, oh, Egypt, remember Egypt. Um, in fact, they later would tell stories, and they'd be like, we sat around pots of meat when we were in Egypt. You remember Egypt. You irrigated the ground by foot. Now, we read this, and we think, that, that's a weird image, right? Like, does your foot water gardens? How do you irrigate the ground by foot? Um, it's a weird image. In fact, the translators will often translate it to make it easier for us. So they'll translate it, irrigate by hand or irrigate easily. Um, but the actual image is irrigate by foot. How does that work? In Egypt, all you have to do, if you want to take water, when the rains and the floods come in and floods the Nile and the Nile recedes, leaves this really rich, mineral-rich soil, and you want to take that water and you want to bring it to your crops, your farmer, you take your heel and you just dig it in the ground. Now, today, farmers use deer to do this, named John. Um, but then they used, that's dad humor at his best. Uh, then you could just instill to this day, some farmers will just, you just drag your heel, you create a little channel, and you can irrigate by foot. It's like the muck fields in Hudsonville. It's good soil. It's not that way in Israel. It's not that way in Israel. Uh, Moses says it's, it, this land is, it drinks water. In Israel, you do have rain. It rains um, once a year. There's a rainy season, then there's a dry season. There's two seasons. Uh, the rainy season goes from mid-October-ish to mid-April-ish, plus or minus a few weeks. And all the rain comes during that period, and then almost no rain comes during the rest of it. A um, little bit in the north, but most of the country remains pretty dry the rest of the year. All of your biblical festivals, there are seven of your seven biblical festivals, all of them have something to do with the agricultural calendar. So when we hear things like Passover and Pentecost and Palm Sunday or Sukkot, uh, when we hear those things, we think religious holidays, Old Testament. We know some stories about the Passover celebration. Um, but their parties in the Bible, in which you gather together as your community, and there are three in the fall, and the three in the fall are prayer services to remember the stories, but also to come together and say, God, send us rain. Four services, four festivals in the fall, or in the, I'm sorry, in the spring, uh, three in the fall, four in the, four in the spring to say, God, thank you for sending rain. Now, Keep us diligent. Help us do the work. Produce the fruit. What they understood is that to live as a farmer in Egypt or in Israel requires a partnership. If you could be the most disciplined, the most uh, the best work ethic, you can plant the crops. But if God doesn't send the rain, nothing's going to happen. It's a partnership. God can send the rain, but if you don't do the work, nothing will happen. So living in Israel, if you're a farmer, lots of farmers in the Bible, living as, as a farmer in Israel is an every single day, every single year dependency on God. God, I need you. We need you. God, we need you. You cannot get comfortable like in Egypt where all you have to do is drag your foot and you have water. You don't need to cry out to God. God's, the, the ground is soaked. It's saturated. I think one of the reasons God pulls his people out of Egypt is because in Egypt, they forget his name. But in Israel, you cannot forget 
that you can't control certain things. Uh, that's the land of the the that's the land of the bees, or the what I said is the land of the date palms, the land of honey. Uh, there's another land. It's the land of milk, the land of the shepherds. Um, and here's where I think we most misunderstand the scriptures. Um, have you, by the way, have you noticed how often the Bible refers to God as a shepherd? It's all over the place. Jesus will say, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus grabs that image. The um, Bible all the time talks about God as our shepherd. God is a shepherd. Uh, it's a major industry. Um, for a majority of the country, shepherding is the job. Now, we hear that and we say, I ain't no sheep. I'm American, <laughs> right? Like, we hear it and we say, no, I'm a lion. Uh, turns out, uh, that's a, it's an attitude we can have in Egypt and we can have it in America. We can ha- but in Israel, you need a shepherd. Uh, every sheep knows this. The lions actually... The shepherd protects you from the lions. So in that scenario, I prefer to be with the shepherd um, versus being the lion. Um, but this will play into our uh, image of the Bible if we, if we understand this. Uh, Psalm 23, for instance, many people know it by heart. Many choose it as the passage to be read at their funeral. And uh, many of us, it's the passage, one of two scriptures we know in the King James Version. It's the Lord's Prayer and it's, Psalm 23, like that's it. That's the one that we have deep, so deep within us that we're still saying it like great grandma said it. Uh, Psalm 23 begins like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Now again, because we misunderstand the land, we often picture Julie Andrews. He leads me beside green pastures, dancing in Austria, or we picture New Zealand and deep green grass. Maybe right now your lawn is like deep green grass because it's rained and you haven't gotten a chance to go mow. And you picture like the sheep moving in. And, and, and if you just follow God, the psalmist David says you follow God and God is going to bring you to this amazing land with this really beautiful grass where you have everything you ever need all around you. In fact, you have everything you need. You don't even need the shepherd. He needs to get you there. And you're good. Let me show you the land of the shepherd. This is the land of the shepherd. It's a desert. Now, it's not the Judean wilderness. Um, There's three words for desert in our Bible. Our Bible translates them all desert. Just like we have multiple words for snow, the Bible has one word for snow. We say sleet, snow, slush, because we live in a snowy climate. They live in a dry desert climate. They have three words. The Judean wilderness where Jesus is tempted, you probably can't shepherd in that region. region. There's not many animals. Uh, When Jesus is tempted and he's attended to by the animals, we can make a really educated guess as to where in the Judean wilderness Jesus is based on that little detail. Another sermon. Um, But this is the desert. Uh, It's known as Midbar in your Bible. Uh, There's not a lot of green. Uh, In fact, one thing that's fun to do when we take groups to Israel is the first time you see shepherds is when you're moving to the desert. And there's still lots of them. And uh, and somebody inevitably will always ask, "What what are the sheep eating? Right? Like, are they eating rocks? Like, what are the sheep eating? Like, because they're eating, but what are they eating? 
Which is a great question uh, because this is the question the Bible wants you to ask. What are the sh- where are these green pastures? Uh, the word green pastures, actually the word green means new. Where's the new grass that the Bible talks about? He leads me to new grass. Well, it turns out, uh, we'll talk more about this in the story in the soil coming up. But the way the rain works is coming off of the Mediterranean Sea, you drop a bunch of rain on the mountains like California. And then on the other side, you have desert. Uh, But at night, when the moisture comes over, it gets cold in the desert at night. There's no cloud coverage. And so the cold, whatever's moisture is left in the atmosphere, that cold temperature will create some condensation. And the condensation will gather along the rocks. And along the sides of rocks, you will have green pasture. Do you see how this, like our, what we bring to the scripture shapes our theology? If our theology is, if you say yes to God, he's going to bring you into a great land with everything you've ever needed. Just say yes to Jesus and life will be easy peasy. Uh, lemon squeezy, right? Like just say yes to Jesus and he'll take care of all of it. So much so you don't even need the shepherd anymore. He's giving you the grass. And then you go to the land that David sees. The shepherd doesn't know where to bring you as the sheep. You don't make it. By midday, this grass will burn up from the heat. Uh, If you don't, this is the land of just enough. There's just enough. Which, by the way, strikes me as far more realistic to how life actually works. Right? God doesn't always bring you into these lush green pastures, but he does give you just enough. I actually think this is why this passage should be read at funeral services. In this season where we're grieving, just to say, well, God's great and everything's easy. Like that doesn't feel true to our experience of grief and hope and how do they play with each other. But to remind people that God is your shepherd and he will give you just enough for today. And if you trust him, He will bring you tomorrow to new grass and he will give you just enough for tomorrow. That's the picture. In Egypt, lots of grass. Goshen, Google Goshen. It's green, 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 green. But in Israel, if you're going to follow the shepherd, you need to follow the shepherd. With a sheep gets lost, it's done. Why does Jesus leave the 99 to find the one? Because without a shepherd in Israel, you're gone. You are gone. Uh, The passage then says, uh, he makes me lie down, or he leads me beside still waters. Uh, Did you know that the number one cause of death in the desert in Israel is drowning? (laughs) Every year, tourists die in deaths of drowning in Israel uh, in the desert. Now, you would think heat exhaustion, heat stroke, uh, all those things are real, but we're pretty educated when we go to the desert, and most people know to bring extra water and not to go too far from the trails. Uh, Israelis know to never go without a guide, all of that. Um, But drowning is something that happens a lot when groups get around. And how? Well, the the mountains, rain comes in off the Mediterranean, dumps on the mountains. The mountains are made of limestone. Limestone can't absorb water. So... These waters will collect and then coming out of nowhere will be a flash flood down in through the, what are known as wadis. 
the only time you see it, Israel is a land of rocks. The only time you see sand in Israel is at the Mediterranean coast and at the bottom of a wadi. So when Jesus talks about build your house, don't build your house on the sand, build it on a rock. And every builder says, that makes no sense. Like we, well, we bring in sand to build houses. Why would Jesus say that? Well, don't build your house where one storm can wipe it out. Do the work, build it higher. Uh, this is a wadi in the desert. Much more work to build it on the rock, but don't build it in the, in the valley. F- trust the shepherd. He knows which water is safe to drink and which water, if you're standing there drinking it and out of nowhere comes a flash flood, you're gone. So you see the picture. When we get to Egypt, life will get comfortable and it's really, really, really easy to forget that every single moment of every day for the farmer is we need you, God. We cannot do this without you. We cannot do this without you. And when you get to the, the land of the shepherd, the land of milk, it is really easy when you're in Egypt, look, just go, go, sheep can go graze over there. But when you get to Israel, every step of every day, we need the shepherd. We need to know his voice. We need to know his footsteps. We need to know that by day, he'll be in front of us. And at night, as Psalm 23 says, he moves into the middle of the pack and he sings to us. That's the language of Psalm 23. He sings to us from the middle of the pack because we can't see at night. And so he reminds us when we're going through the darkest valleys, the shadow of death, that he's still with us. He's not abandoned us, even if we don't see him. Our theology can be shaped by our pictures and the images that come out of Egypt are images of green, lush, and easy. And so God says, I need to pull you out of, I I gave you a shot. You could stay in Egypt. You could influence the world from Egypt, but it didn't take more than a few generations before they lost his name. We got to get him out of, we got to get him out of Egypt. And to do that, we need the book of Exodus. Um, So we'll pick up in Exodus uh, next fall. Um, but this morning, uh, the, the language you'll hear throughout the book of Exodus is this one word, remember. Remember, 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 because we don't want you to forget. It's easy to forget. That was what happened in Egypt. Uh, Jesus will send his disciples into the world and say, go scatter. And he doesn't want them to forget. They're not in Israel anymore. So don't forget to depend on God. And so what he gives to his disciples is a meal. I want you to gather. I want you to eat. And I want you to do all of this in remembrance of me. Um, When we gather for communion, one of the things we're trying to be reminded of is we cannot do this on our own. We need each other. We need him. Uh, And he gives us this really simple image because just like we can't go without food, we can't go without him. And so uh, we want to invite you to the table this morning. Um, If if you said yes to Jesus, We want to invite you to the table if it's your first Sunday um, and you're like, I want to say yes to Jesus. We want to invite you to the table this morning as we partake in this ancient celebration. Uh, We do it here at South Harbor. You'll come forward when you're ready and you will take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup. Uh, There are four stations. The two on the end have a gluten-free option. The two here do not. Um, And uh, and where's Rob? Rob Hausman in the back will be floating around. If you would like someone to come to you and serve you, he would love to do that. Uh, And so just stick up your hand uh, when you see Rob Hausman. Again, he's in the back. You have to peek, um, uh, and he will serve you. But let me say a word of prayer.
Lord, uh, we recognize and we confess that we, we really are grateful that life is easy and comfortable, um, but Lord, we do not want to forget, we do not want to forget. Uh, Lord, help us to remember so we don't have to walk through the desert. Lord, help us to remember that you are our shepherd. Uh, Lord, help us to cling to you with every ounce of our hope and every ounce of our being. Uh, King Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. And everybody said. As always, we hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.